All right, this is uh, Systematic Theology, for those of you that are here and awake. And those of you that are watching us online, we do want to uh, give a shout out to you to thank you for tuning us in. And uh, it's 6.45 here in Austin, Texas, that's Central Standard Time. And uh, we have people coming in, so we're going to get started. And uh, we're delighted that you are you're with us. So let me begin with a word of prayer and pray for you that are watching online and pray for us here on our main campus. Oh Lord, we bless your name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. We bless your holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Father, we praise you today. You're an awesome heavenly Father. You are the wonderful Son of God, the dynamic, powerful Holy Spirit, one in three, three in one. We praise you, O oh God, because you have created us in your image and you have sent your son to die for our sins so that we could be reconciled and redeemed unto you. And then, Lord, you have baptized us by the Holy Spirit of God. What blessed people we are in the spiritual realm and also, Lord, in the physical realm. Here we are with our health in the greatest country in the world, in one of the great states of the world and great city. You have allowed us to be here, to live, to witness for you, to bear truth of the gospel. Thank you for Great Hills Baptist Church, Lord. Thank you for our people that are here today. I pray that you would bless them and bless their needs, God, whatever they may be and in whatever realm that they need a particular blessing from you. I pray for those that are watching online, for those who will listen to this lecture uh, later on as they pull it up on the, on the website. So we just pray that you would use it, God, for your honor and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. I know we did a couple of tapings um, before we left to go to India, and we had such a wonderful time over there, and uh, I thought about you, not a whole lot, but I did think about you, <laughs> we were just so, so focused, I went to the doctor yesterday, and he said, how did you sleep while you were over there, and I said, well, I said, it's amazing, I slept, I said, I'm just going to tell you, it is God's favor that allowed me to sleep like I did, because we slept on some pretty hard uh, mattresses, and uh, he said, well, you know, when you're here, you've got a dozen things on your mind and you're dealing with, like in church and so forth. But when you're over there, you had one thing on your mind, and that is reaching those people. And I thought, that's, that's true. That's well said. So we're going to pick right up here with this uh, wonderful lesson uh, from Dr. Grudem on election, uh, predestination, reprobation, free will, sovereignty of God, all those wonderful things. And we made it to see... We got to the point where we're looking at election and man's uh, free will, and I want to encourage you to uh, be a lifelong student of, of theology, because the more I study, it seems like the more I realize how much I don't know, and the more I study, the more uh, it, it seems that God just blesses me, and I'm able to, uh, to learn what he wants me to learn. So let, let me just begin with these little words of caveat or just disclaimers, that whenever you study a subject like this, that is so magnanimous, so huge, and so mysterious, you always have to come not only with a modicum of humility, I would say you have to come with a boatload of humility. Because I've seen this so many times, and the danger here when you're studying election and sovereignty of God and free will of man, um, there's this tendency to not only get red in the face, but get this tendency that you have the monopoly on the truth and everybody else is wrong. Not that there's anybody like that at Great Hills. I, I've heard about churches in other countries, you know, in cities, but, but there is a proclivity toward that. And I've seen it many times as a, as a professor, uh, as a pastor, 
If there is a doctrine that will bring it out of you, it's this doctrine because the lines are so demarcated. They're so drawn because you have people that are so passionately Arminian in their doctrine of man, and you have some that are so passionately Calvinistic and Reformed in their doctrine of soteriology and the doctrine of man. So I think you know by now kind of where I fall out on this. Uh, Dr. Grudem, I tell you, this is a fabulous read. I've enjoyed and continue to enjoy reading his book, and he presents a very viable case for a Reformed doctrine of predestination and election, and I encourage you to read it. And many of you have, and many of you think, my word, I could never read that. That thing weighs more than I do, but I, but I do encourage you. But if you do read this, I also have other uh, books that I would ask you to, to read, like Dave Hunt's book, his criticism of Calvinism called What Love Is This? And so having read both of those, it's, it's kind of fun. It gives you a, a real viewpoint and inside, if you will, an inside look into those um, to those do- to opposing doctrines, if you will. Okay, so let's look at election and man's uh, free will. As I, uh, as I lean on my notes pretty heavily, I'm doing this because I really want to make sure I'm accurately stating what uh, Grudem says. Now, if you're listening to me and you'll think, Are you, do you believe that? Or are you saying that Grudem says that? And so there may be some confusion, and I'll be happy to, um, to clarify that if I need to after, after the class. But remember, this is the textbook. And as the, as the teacher, I need to teach this textbook. I don't always agree with this textbook, but as a professor or as a teacher, you at least need to, I think, interpret accurately what this guy is trying to say. So, for example, on free will, he says, he refutes any argument that election negates a human free will or free choice. He says, I will not stand for that because the Bible is very clear that God has given us a free will and a free choice whether we want to receive Christ or not. He says, though the elect, they will choose Christ voluntarily because God causes it to happen. Isn't that interesting? On the one breath, he says, it's going to happen. God causes it to happen, but it in no way violates the human responsibility and the free will of man. You say, man, that guy's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Well, Scripture does that. Scripture affirms both, that God does elect, he is sovereign, and he has predestined, and yet man can choose to believe or man can choose to reject God. Our choices must not be absolutely free, he says, of any outside influence in order to be free choices. Isn't that interesting? He says our choices don't have to be absolutely devoid of outside influence in order for them to be truly uh, free choices. He says, God influences us to make a certain choice, and yet it is still our uh, free choice. He also refutes the argument against election that says, man really had no say whatsoever in the matter. And you hear that a lot, don't you? When you, when you hear this, uh, these, these thoughts and these teachings on election and, and sovereignty of God and predestination, one of the arguments is, well, man is just an automaton. He's a robot. He, really, he didn't really have any say-so in the matter. It's all predetermined. And yet he says, and this is an interesting quote from Grudem, when he says, quote, now listen to this quote. When people rejected Jesus, he always put the blame on their willful choice to reject him, not on anything decreed by the Father, end of quote. Okay? He goes to Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 20, and he says, listen, if you people think this is unfair, then who are you to argue with God? Now, that is a big statement that he makes. And, I, and my friends have told me this before. They say, well, who are you 
Oh, mere mortal man to argue with God. If God wants to decree it from all eternity, this person's going to heaven and this person's going to hell, who are you to argue with the counsel of God? And I'm like, well, I'm not trying to argue with God, but I just don't see it like that. I just don't think that God is eternally decreed that you, John, you're the elect, you're going to heaven, Judy, you're, you're not, you're going to hell, sorry. Um, I just don't see it like that. That's called reprobation, and we'll get there in, in a little bit. However, if you follow election sovereignty of God the way he does, you have to get to reprobation, and you have to say things like, wow, this is the most difficult doctrine I've ever read in my life. It seems unfair. I don't understand it, and I would never believe it unless God said it was true. That's what he says. I would never believe reprobation unless I, unless I read it in Scripture. This is Scripture, by the way. Okay? This is not <laughs> Scripture. This is man's ideals and man's thoughts. This is God's ideals and, and God's thoughts, okay? Okay, so you have a problem with Romans 9. You have a problem with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Get over it. God hardens who he wants to harden. He softens who he wants to soften. But I don't see it quite like that. I see God hardening Pharaoh's heart whose heart had already been hardened by his own choice. And I see God choosing Jacob over Esau because that's what God wanted to do. Not that he, that he had no purpose for Esau, or no purpose for Ishmael, but it wasn't the purpose that he had for Jacob and uh, Israel's line. I think I mentioned this in the last lecture when it comes to uh, these, these two choices about, you know, hardening the hearts and, you know, Calvinism or man's free will and choice. Ezekiel 33.11 says, again, some would say the most difficult passage for all Calvinists, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And that is a strong argument for freedom of man and an argument against reprobation. However, however, if that is a strong argument for freedom of man and anti-reprobation, then you are going to have to wrestle through and struggle through Romans chapter 9 through 11, which to me is the most definitive argument in the Bible for Grudem's argument or for John Calvin's argument. So, you know, you know it's kind of like, well, man, how could this be? How could both be right? And yet, I think it's somewhere in, in just in the mystery and the counsel of God, it is that way. And we as mere mortals can never fully, absolutely wrap our arms around it. After class, if you come up to me and say, I know what you said, you just haven't met me. Okay. I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm God's greatest theologian, God's greatest gift to mankind. I have figured it out, and you just need to read a little more. Please don't do that to me, okay? I, 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 just, I, have, I have very little tolerance and patience for that because that is such an arrogant attitude. And I just don't do arrogance very well. In fact, I'll just look at you and smile, and I'll just walk, walk away because you cannot fully grasp this. No theologian has ever fully grasped the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man. You have to leave wiggle room. You have to leave mystery room. And you can be strong in your Calvinism, strong in your Reformed position, but you still have to come away and say, I don't understand all of it. And then likewise, you can be strong in your Arminian, you can be strong in your free will, but you have to say, I, I don't understand it all uh, completely. I think only Jesus does. And some would say, well, and Paul, okay? Jesus and Paul and the writers of, of the New Testament. Grudem says, if you think it's unfair that God uh, saves, that God saves, uh, it doesn't save everybody, you need to rethink your thinking and say, 
God be praised for saving anybody. And that's a good, good argument. He says, he does not treat us like he treated the angels that fell. How many of the fallen angels did God save? Zero. How many of fallen mankind, fallen humanity did God save? Well, he saved a, a whole lot of us. You know, I, I, a friend of mine tried to describe it to me this way, that there's a pool of humanity. And God reaches down and he grabs a handful of humanity. And, and that is the great saving act of God. And that sh- should be enough for us to say, God be praised. And of course, my question is, what about the ones he, he, he didn't pick up? He said, that's the, that's the wrong question. My Calvinist friend said, don't ask that question. That's not our concern. Our concern is he did save some, God be praised. I'm like, well, what about those people? You know, I, I do. I keep going back to what somebody said. Election is one of the most wonderful, amazing doctrines in the scripture. Yeah, if you're elect. She said, but Brother Danny, don't, don't trample so lightly on that because that's God's word and that's God's teaching. No, I, I'm with you. I, I, I'm in there and I'm, I'm grappling with it and, and seeing it. Maybe a little bit differently. He says, we cannot impose on God what we think is appropriate or fair or not. But Genesis 18.25 is a verse I keep coming back to that says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That's a verse you ought to jot down in your Bibles. You ought to jot this down in your memory. I don't know if you're a note taker like I am, but I like to take notes. And in Genesis 18.25, says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Okay, let's, let's say this. Some of y'all are going to totally misunderstand what I'm about to say, and I, I'm just going to say it. Let's say I'm wrong. And some of y'all are going, now you're talking, brother, now you're talking. Let's say I'm wrong. God reaches down in election and predestination and chooses who he wants to, not with foreknowledge as to whether I was going to believe or not, just purely based on his sovereign will, his sovereign choice. He chooses, by the way, this is mainline Calvinism, what I'm teaching you. Are you with me? And this is what God does. Listen to this. If that's the way it is, God be praised. God be praised. You say, you're not totally there. I'm not, but if, that, if, if I find out, and, and, and when I go to heaven, I find out that that's really the way it was and what happened, God be praised because God doesn't make mistakes. He just is bigger than us, and he just operates in a way that we in our mortal minds cannot fully grasp. Grudem seeks to answer the substantive biblical argument against his views on election and reprobation by doing this. He says, there is the revealed will of God, and then there is the hidden will of God. And by the way, I've heard these arguments given to me by my friends, and uh, I think Grudem does an excellent job in presenting this. So let me explain what he means. The revealed will of God would include verses like John 3, 16. Whosoever will believe, let him, let him come. Who, who, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes, that is his revealed will, over against his hidden will, which only relates to the elect. Do y'all follow what he's saying? Yeah, the gospel call, absolutely, everybody can come and be saved. That is revealed will, but there is a secret will, a hidden will, a particular will that only applies to the elect. When I read that, I wrote in the margin of his book, W-H-A-T, question mark, exclamation mark. I was like, I don't, I don't see it that, don't, I don't see it that way, but he, he does. 
He also argues that through God, uh, that though God wills that all are saved, his greater will is that only elect will be saved. And he says, for Arminians, they believe that the higher form of God's will is not his own glory, but the free will of man. It's interesting. He says, you Arminians, you, you get it wrong here because you're so concerned about man's free will and God not usurping man's free will that you miss the greater thing, which is God's, God's glory. And that is the, 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 the greater uh, cause, is the glory of God. And then I ask this question, but which brings God more glory, when someone chooses to believe in God or someone who has to believe in God? I'm just saying, okay, I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. I'll let you grapple with it and, and wrestle with it. Okay, let's talk about the doctrine of reprobation. Some of you are like, you're not going there, are you? You're not going to talk about reprobation. And I am. I'm going to have to talk about it. Uh, because it is the natural extension of election predestination from a Reformed, Presbyterian, Calvinistic viewpoint. You, you have to go there. And that's what I admire so much about Grudem. He's like, I'm not afraid of it. This is what I believe, and I believe I have biblical substance to believe this, and you just deal with it. That's basically what he says. I just wish he was that way when he was talking about creation. Because in creation, he would say, well, I know the Bible says, it seems to say that the earth is younger and, and uh, yom is a 24-hour day, but there's too much science. I wish he would have this viewpoint on creation like he has on uh, election and, and, rep and reprobation. Reprobation defined as this, it is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. Did y'all get that? I'll repeat it. It is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them, in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. Now, uh, before you get all discombobulated, before you get all mad at those, Cal oh, those Calvinists, believe I just can't believe somebody believed that. What, they lost their mind? No, they haven't. It is it goes back to their natural flow of what they would believe. If they do believe A, then they're going to have to believe B. And again, they would argue, listen, don't, don't be upset. The fact is that God would save anybody. He could have chosen not to save anybody, but at least he chose to save somebody and God be praised. Let me say that again. If you're right, you're right. Okay, I'm, I'm good. So you don't have to come up after the class and convince me of the Calvinist position because you may be right. Okay, and I may be wrong. I hope I'm not wrong. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like pre-millennial, pre-tribulation. I, I hope I'm right. You know, that God comes and gets us before the great tribulation, but I may be wrong. We may all go through the tribulation, and the historic pre-millennial got it right. He said, Brother Dana, I don't know if I like all this ambiguity about you. I, I just think you need to be, just know what you believe. Just tell everybody what you believe. And just quit talking about all these theories and stuff. No, and, I, and I'm not trying to please anybody. I'm just saying... I'm just saying in theology, you believe the best you can, but you have to open up your mind and say, but I might, got, I might have gotten that wrong, okay? Now that should have pleased everybody. <laughs> everybody ought to be happy at least with that. Mystery. Let us, uh, 
What did you say, Kyle, one time? Let us be comfortable with mystery. It's a good word. Let us be comfortable with not knowing everything. Can't figure it all out. Okay. Question I have is, how does it bring God glory to allow people to be born um, with the very thought or with the very conclusion that they are born only to die and go to hell. To me, I think it lessens the severity of hell. Like, well, it's not that big, it's not that bad a deal if God just passed you over and you're going to hell. But if the Bible is right and hell is a place of torment, of darkness, then, then I'm, I'm having a little bit of a problem here, okay? If, if it is that horrendous and that God would just pass over some knowing that too bad that they're going to hell, I think it lessens the severity of hell. Grudem admits that, as such, when he writes that this doctrine is the most difficult doctrine in the Bible. Not that it's the most difficult to understand. That would be the humanity and the deity of Christ. Remember that? He said the humanity and the deity of Christ is the most difficult doctrine to understand in the Bible. And then probably second would be the Trinity. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is this doctrine is the most difficult not to understand but to appropriate in my heart. He says, because to send someone to hell, I admit it is a horrible place. But he is confined, I think, to carry out his interpretation uh, to, the con- to that following conclusion. He writes, and I quote him, It is something that we would not want to believe, and we would not believe, unless Scripture clearly taught reprobation. Okay? He references Jude 4 when it speaks of those designated for condemnation, um, again, he sees that as these people were created and designated automatically to go to hell, but I see it differently. I, I see it, those people are created in God's image with free will, and all of those who reject him, they are designated to a place called, called hell. Uh, I see it um, in, in Romans 9, 17 through 22, with Pharaoh and the other vas- vessels of wrath made for destruction. Come on now. If you're a Calvinist, you're going, that's right, buddy. That's what it says. Some were made for destruction. God created some for eternal life, and he made those others like Pharaoh. He made him to destroy him so that his glory would be manifest. And I'm, you may be right, okay? You may be, or you may be wrong. It may be that God created Pharaoh with a free will, and he so hardened his heart, and he rejected God. God says, I'm going to destroy you. And we know he did destroy him. Another example is 1 Peter 2.8 where it says, those who stumble and disobey, quote, they are destined to do so. Okay? They are destined to do so. So again, you don't have to come up and argue with me and convince me because I know all the scriptures. And I don't want to say this in a proud way. And I hope you hear my heart what I'm about to say. I think after being here three and a half years, I can make this statement. Y'all don't misunderstand me. It's not that I don't understand Calvinism. It's just I don't accept it all. Okay? It's not that I don't understand it. I really do understand it. It's just that I don't, I don't buy into the whole, the whole teaching of it. Those who are destined to do so, to me, in the ideal, is that those who reject Christ, that is their, that is their destiny when they reject him, not... They are just born to uh, reject him. But to his credit, Grudem carries through with his teachings. 
and he embraces it as hard as it is, and he does not accuse God of doing anything uh, unfair. Okay? Uh, his belief that the Bible teaches reprobation leads him to conclude that this causes us to tremble in horror. Okay? He says, God selected John, elect, you're going to heaven. Judy, sorry, didn't, didn't select you. And it's not, that, it's not so bad that I didn't select you, Judy. What's amazing is that I selected John. Okay, Grudem says, we tremble in horror over that because that's what God has done. Okay. But my question is, why would we tremble in horror and violate our own basic sense of right and wrong? Again, that's, that's just my, my question. He concludes his chapter on election and reprobation by stating that election shows God's mercy towards his people and reprobation shows his judgment uh, toward sinners. Uh, scripture never places the blame for condemnation on God, but on fallen man and fallen angels. He says we too should feel great sorrow for the unbeliever because of his or her eternal destiny of hell. We should feel very sorry for Judy, for her eternal destiny is one of hell. It has been decreed that way from the foundations of the world. Um, Grudem does not say we are to seek to share Christ with them, at this point, uh, but I see Paul seeking to share Christ with, with them, for it, with everybody. All right. Um, he says, God chose us not for anything he saw in us. Again, Grudem rejects this foreknowledge ideal that God chose us because he decided, he just chose us because he decided to love us. There's no greater purpose, okay? Um, it, to, to me, this is fascinating because, you know, I get election, I get predestination, but many times in the Bible, have you not read where God chose and elected not, ba not based on anything that person had done? For example, uh, who was it that was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb? Anybody? John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. Hello? Predestination, <laughs> election. How about in my quiet time this morning in Jeremiah? I just finished Isaiah. I started Jeremiah chapter 1, and, and God says, Jeremiah... While you were in the womb, brother, I chose you. I selected you. Hello? That's powerful. Samuel could be another example. But to me, every time God does that, he does that for a purpose, for a reason, even the nation of Israel, so that they would share his greater glory and be a missionary people. In other words, I often see election and predestination unto missions but I never see election and predestination unto reprobation. And again, that's my opinion. And uh, that's, that's, where, that's where I come, come down. Some of y'all's minds are just going... You're, you're just, I, can, I can just feel it. You're going, but what about this? What about this scripture? And what, and what about that scripture? Amen. Um, Oh, Abraham could be another example. Genesis 12, I bless you. I've chosen you to be a blessing to the nations. Israel, Psalm 67. Isaiah 43, Israel will be my witnesses. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you so that you would what? Anybody remember that? You'll bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Fruit to eternal life. You, you know, listen, if you are elect and you know it, God chose you for a purpose to get out there and preach the gospel so as many people as possible can hear the good news of salvation. John Calvin believed that. Do you know that? John Calvin 
believed in election and predestination. But he also believed that his responsibility was to go and he would knock on people's doors as a soul winner and share the gospel with them. That's the kind of Calvinism I can fellowship with. The kind that I can't is the kind that says, it doesn't matter, why waste your time? You know, God's already decreed, then, then we're not going to get along. I, I just know we, we're going to get along well because somebody said, JC does not stand for John Calvin, it stands for Jesus Christ. And our preeminent allegiance is to him and not to a system of, of doctrine. And in conclusion... I respect Grudem and all those who hold this position and honestly see their interpretation on the verses mentioned above. And if they are right and I am wrong, so be it. They just may be. Okay, you with me? So be it. Some of my Calvinist brethren going, now you're seeing the light, buddy. Now you got it. Come on, say that sentence again. They may be right and I may be wrong. However, I still hold to election based on foreknowledge. Romans 8, 29, for, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. I see foreknowledge as God seeing in advance whether I'm going to accept him or not, and then basing his election and predestination and sovereign choice based on whether I was going to accept him or not. I promise you, Calvinists do not like that. They totally disagree with that because they say, you're putting way too much emphasis on man because you're saying that man can save himself. Man cannot save himself. The only way I can believe in God, listen to this, salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. I am dead in trespasses and sins. The only way I got a chance is that the sovereign God comes to me in my deadness and says, you are lost, you need to repent, and he gives me the capacity to even believe. That's amazing grace. That is amazing grace that God would do that to me. And he did that for me, and I, and I responded, and I'm, I'm eternally grateful. Um, someone asked Charles Haddon Spurgeon one time, that, and they were struggling with this. And by the way, Spurgeon, like Edwards and like Whitfield, were evangelical Calvinists. They believed in reprobation, for example, but that did not stop them from being soul winners and going out because they say, I don't know who's saved and who's lost, so I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell the world. But this, lady, this lady came up to me one time and said, Spurgeon, I, I'm, I'm bothered, I'm troubled. What if I go and witness to one of the non-elect? And what if they get saved? Spurgeon said, God will forgive you. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. He also said, when somebody goes to heaven... There's going to be a banner sign that reads, as you enter into heaven, whosoever, let him come and partake of the water of life. And once you walk into heaven, behind you, there's another banner that says, chosen from the foundation of the world. Calvinists and non-Calvinists, I believe, can walk in fellowship with one another, and if we don't, we're going to lose our Southern Baptist Convention. We are. We, we're, we're going to lose what we have on this very doctrine if we don't get our act together. I promise you that. If there is a doctrine that's going to divide Southern Baptist Zion, it's this doctrine because people are so passionate about it. They're so passionate because they believe I'm in violation of God's clear teaching if I hold to something that is not in their camp. And then on the other side, they're like, well, you're just a reprobate yourself. How dare 
dare you believe in something? And see, and I've seen, I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm watching our convention slowly, this schism. I think, barring a miracle, it will divide us as a denomination. And I think that's sad. I really think that's sad. Um, Great Hills, uh, I know in my heart of hearts, I still believe that we can be a unified church with Calvinist and non-Calvinist, with traditional people and untraditional people, with multi-generational worship, with the old loving the young, and, and I don't maybe I'm just maybe I'm just trying to create a sense of utopia, but I really still believe in my heart of hearts that what we are doing at Great Hills is what God wants us to do. And, it, and, it's, and it's isolating in some ways, and it, it, it narrows us in some ways. Now, think about it. If a guy comes to Great Hills and he's like, man, I am dyed in the wool, five-point, tulip, Calvinist, where are you on that? I'm like, well, I'm maybe three, three and a half, something. I mean, they do. I mean, I know. I get that. They just stomp off, you know. And somebody else say, well, you really believe in election and predestination? Yeah. What? You believe it? God, well, let, let me explain. You know, I, I get that as a pastor. Pastoring is a wonderful job, by the way. It's just wonderful. You just get to please everybody, and everybody loves you, and it's wonderful. But I've gotten the same thing with, well, where are the old folks at Great Hills? Why aren't they tucked away in the corner singing, how great thou art? Where are they? I said, well, they're in there with the teenagers. Oh. And then we come, teenage, where's the hip teenage disco ball lights, man? Where are those guys? Well, they're in there with the old people. <sighs> you know. so I, I don't try to live my life just to make people mad. I really don't. I try to live my life under what I think God wants us to, who he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. And it narrows us, but it also, I believe, God has, is, is blessing us. So last thing I want to say is um, if George Whitfield and John Wesley can get along, so can you and him. If Paige Patterson and Al Mohler can get along, so, so can you. Paige Patterson, straight up, foreknowledge, God knows, then he elects. Al Mohler's like, no way, baby. <laughs> Ain't no foreknowledge like that. God just elects, period. And so these two giants of the faith come together at the Southern Baptist Convention, and they have a debate a few years ago. And it's so cool. And they're still good brothers, and they love each other, and they're trying to model for the rest of us that you can still disagree agreeably, okay? I almost said, man, I'm glad that's over with, but I don't, I don't want to say that. <laughs> All right. Okay. What I want to do is... Um, it's 7.20. If I stop and take questions, and uh, do y'all promise not to get red in the face, not to get angry, but just say, this is what I believe, and this is why I believe it, or I agree with you, I disagree with you. If y'all promise to be, be that cordial and civil, I will stop right now and we'll take questions. If not, we're going to go right into the, to the next lecture, okay? So let's, let's stop and just say, are you confused as mud? I mean, do you, do you need some clarification? Do you need some help? Is it that it's not that you don't understand it, it's that you do understand it and you're still struggling with it? Then, then I would say, welcome to my, welcome to my world. Uh, because, um, because I know, even within this room and even within the greater church body, uh, there are those who, who are very passionate in their Calvinism and in their um, 
their doctrines of, of the faith. And uh, they still love me, and I still love them. And uh, we, we walk together in harmony. And so um, I think that's cool. But any, any comments, any questions about it before we move on to, uh, uh, to, a, to a, 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 well, another lecture? How's that? Yes, sir. You had a problem with something I said? I can't believe it. Yeah, I think that's well said, and I, th- I think that's the kind of attitude w- we have to have, and if I come down more on this side, then I still have to say, I still have to say I don't understand completely, and I respect if you come down um, on, on the other side. Um, I appreciate it. That's a, that's a humble approach. I think, um, I, think that's, I think that's very good. Yes, sir, Brother Kyle. Well said. Hermeneutical tension. Sounds like a guy getting a PhD or somewhere, you know, in seminary. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. But no, that's that's well, well said, Kyle. And that in the false dichotomies, I like I like that uh, too. Um, yeah, building. Yeah, good. Well said, Kyle. I can't improve. Yes, sir, Alex. How are you, brother? <laughs> Yes. Is that by observing what's going on in the world, our scripture being the same that the judge of the world is not You asked me a very hard question. I almost wish you hadn't have asked me that question. <laughs> because if there is a question that tilts me toward Calvinism, it's that question. Okay? Some of y'all are like, don't. Don't fear it, brother. Just come on over to the other side. It's okay. When I go on missions and I go see a billion lost people in India, I have, I have, to, I have a couple of thoughts. One is, um, God, you've saved me, and I've got to get over here and tell this, this nation about you. Or number two, it's just the way it is. There are so many lost, and they're going to hell, and... and it's, it's, it's just the way it is. I mean, God, has, uh, God is sovereign. He's, he's in control. And because sometimes if it, I could just get overwhelmed with the sheer lostness of our world, even in Austin, even in Austin. And so I have one or two choices. I can just say, man, yeah, bless you and, and just do the best I can. Or I was talking to a guy, a CEO of one of these big companies here in Austin one time, and we were talking about this, and he's not a believer, but he's struggling with this prosperity in America over against this abject poverty in the world, and his take on it was luck of the draw, buddy. Luck of the draw. You and I got the lucky straw. They didn't. I said, I disagree. I said, the only reason God blessed me is so that I will go tell them about Jesus. And by the way, I still believe that. 
Sometimes I get tempted not to believe that because I get overwhelmed by the magnitude of lostness, but I still believe that God loves everybody and he'll save anybody if they will hear it and if they will repent and they believe. So, Alex, that's a, that's a hard question. I'm glad you asked it, but, um, you know, I think Kyle's phrase, hermeneutical tension, is good. I'm going to be hermeneutically tense for the rest of my life. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just not going to figure it out out. I'm just not. And so I'm going to be at peace best I can with, uh, with, with where, where I see Scripture coming out on these, these tough issues. Whew, tough question. Yes, sir, Ross. Mm-hmm. It is, and that's, that's very perceptive of you, Ross, to pick up on Romans 10, couched between Romans 9 through 11, because both teach. Brother, tell me your name again in the back that spoke first. Tom. I think that's where Tom is right, where he says, it's very clear, at least in my mind, it's clear right there in Romans 9 and 11, and it's very clear right there in Romans, um, Romans 10. So. But that is such a missionary mandate couched in verse in chapter 10 uh, in, in the midst of how someone could come to the conclusion well why would you even go if God hated this person and he passed over this person but you've got to have that hermeneutical tension you got to say I am I'm I am going good good anybody on this side yes yes ma'am right here Well, you just asked one of my more, did you and Alex like get together before class or something and just say, let's, let's stump the, the teacher guy? Well, he, let, let me give you the two options you have on that. Yes. Oh, yes, I will, Brother Terry. Okay, sorry, our friends on, online there. Um, her question is, uh, the main problem she has with free will is the destiny of those who've never heard. What about their free will? What about their opportunity to be saved? Um, I'll give you the two schools of thought there, and I'll tell you where I come out on that, and it's, I, I take a real unpopular position on that. Number one, uh, will not the God, the judge of all the earth, do that which is right? Some say Genesis 18, and they've never heard, then they're like infants. They, just, they are just infants who die, they're just, going to be, they're just going to be grafted in or just allowed to go to, go to heaven. Uh, that's, that's what some would conclude on that. I disagree with that because if that is true, then the greatest method of missions should be, shh, shh, don't tell them. Because if they ain't never heard, then they got a chance. But if you tell them, man, that messes everything. <laughs> then, then they got to decide. Here, here, and here's what I'm about to say, y'all, and it's hard. And I actually, I really struggled through this, what I'm about to say. I believe they will go to hell. God will reveal himself through nature, through history, through conscience. 
the, the, the moral nature of man. God is shouting to them, revealing it. And if they move toward that light, then God will somehow, way, get a copy of the Scripture, get a message about Jesus to them. But if they suppress all known revelation and light, then that's the only chance they get. And guys, somebody almost said, that is just not fair. I mean, we live in America. There's a church on every corner. And there are people over in, in India, and there is no church, hardly any churches over there. My, my response is, is that unfair or are you just being disobedient? Okay? God's not unfair. I think it's we're disobedient. It's that we do know this is right. We do know they're going to hell, and yet we still choose not to go. And again, that's, I don't try to make you feel bad. I'm just telling you, it, this, this changed my life when I realized this. I was, at a, I was in a debate, sort of, at Duke University, and there was, um, there was a panel of us, and we were answering questions from Duke University students, and and I felt way out of my league. I, in fact, I was invited to come, but I was also invited to bring some friends, some heavy hitters with me. My best friend was hosting the debate, and he said, won't you bring some of your heavy, heavy hitters with you? And I said, okay, I will. And so we came, and these Duke students were asking us these questions there in Raleigh. And this guy made a statement, and it still, I don't say it haunts me, but it still resonates in my mind. He has a Ph.D. in theology, has a jurisprudence degree in law, and he says, you want to talk about the destiny of those who've never heard? That's not God's problem. That's our problem. That's what he said. He said, that's not God's problem. That's our problem. He has revealed to us, and that's why we go. I would guarantee if you were to ask Mike Miracle, he'd, he'd say the same thing. That, that motivates him to go because he believes in the lostness of man. And we don't want to throw ourselves just upon the, well, you know, maybe they'll make it. They're not going to make it unless they know Jesus. There is no salvation apart from him. There is no other name whereby we must be saved. Oh, those are some hard, there's some hard teachings, aren't they? Some of y'all say, I'm glad you're up there instead of me. Well, pray for me then, pray for me. Okay, any other questions before we move, um, move on? Yes, ma'am, Miss Mildred. I'll say about babies that babies go to heaven when they die. And, and I base that on, and I get Grudem. Grudem really, really struggles with that. Grudem cannot say they go to heaven. He just can't. I've read him. I've read him closely because he, he so believes in that, that sinful nature and it has to be, something has to, and I, and I get his struggle and I wrestle with it. He says maybe the babies of believers go to heaven. Maybe. Okay. And so he struggles, and that's what I appreciate about him. He, he struggles with stuff, and he'll say, I don't have all the answers. You may disagree with me, but this is where I am on it, and I, and I appreciate that about him. But my main verse is in Samuel when David says, when his baby dies, his infant baby dies, he says, you can't come to me, but I'll go to you. And I believe he's saying that he will go to where this child is in, in heaven. Um, what is the age of accountability? We don't know. The Bible does not say the age of accountability is 7 in Romans chapter 14, verse 2. It doesn't say that. The, only, the closest thing you come to in Romans is everyone will give an account, but there is no age of accountability. I believe it's different for different kids. I really do. I think um, kids that are raised in a home that people love Jesus, it's just almost the natural thing to do. You, you see that you're a sinner and you're like, man, I want to be saved. I want what mom and my dad have. And yet, I can see where that 
age of accountability where they recognize they're sinful apart from God, maybe a little later. Uh, I, I just don't think it's a, at one set particular age. Yes, sir. Do you need me to repeat that question? Yes, sir. All right, the question is from somebody online that said, what about those who live in closed countries where the gospel's suppressed? You can't hardly get a gospel witness in there. Um, I'll quote Adrian Rogers on, on this point, okay? Adrian Rogers said one time, and, uh, and I agree with him, he said, I don't care where you are, who you are, if you start moving toward general revelation toward a God who's the great God, God will drop a missionary out of an airplane <laughs> to get to you. That, that was his take on it, that there will be. And I've heard story after story about this. Do y'all know where the church is the most vibrant and in one of the places it's growing the most in the world? North Korea. North Korea. And it, you, it is the most difficult place to live for Christ. That is a stated fact. Open Doors Ministry says the church is flourishing in the most difficult place. It's not Saudi Arabia. It's not the most difficult place. It's not Iran or Iraq. It is North Korea. And, and people are getting saved, and the gospel is getting uh, to those people. That's a good question. Okay, will y'all let me go to lecture 13? Okay, thank you. Thank y'all for letting me, because I want to I get to 13, and I want to, um, I want to finish up lecture 13 in 10 minutes. <laughs> You're laughing. Y'all are laughing at me. But it's, it's not very long. Um, if, we, if we finish lecture 13 today, that means we have seven left. And um, I don't think we're going to make it. We're going to have to extend our time a, a little bit so um, just, to, just to get them all in. Okay, becoming a Christian. This is lecture 13. It's in your Christian Beliefs book, pages 90 through 94. And, and basically, this has to do with the gospel. What do people have to hear what do people have to believe in order to become uh, a Christian? Okay? What does it take for a person to embrace the gospel or in order to be saved? A is the gospel call. Grudem begins this chapter uh, with a look at Romans 8.30. The sequence of salvation. Remember that God predestines before the creation of the world. He calls us to salvation. He justifies us. And then one day we will be glorified. This is, this is great teaching. He... He begins Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, where uh, all things work together for good to those who love God. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son. And then you keep reading on 31, 32 about uh, God, he, those he saves, he, he justifies, and he, he glorifies. And so he sees it along that sequence of salvation, which I think is incredibly insightful. God calls us out of sin and darkness in 1 Peter 2, 9. And those who are called belong to him, Romans 1, 6. We are called, all of us, I believe, are called, extended this call to life, peace, freedom, hope, salvation. And when we embrace Christ, get this, we're also called to a life of suffering. How many times do we tell people that when we're witnessing to them? Oh, by the way, you know, believe on Jesus and give your heart to Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You're going to have joy and peace and love, and you're going to get blasted you know you're gonna have a rough go of it because this world hates you and this devil hates you I think we ought to tell them that because it's, it's the truth uh, we are called to suffer the Bible says in first Peter 2 21 let me read this to you in first Peter 3 9 for to this 
You were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow uh, his steps. And then the next one is 3 9. 1 Peter uh, 3 9. Not returning evil for evil or uh, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. God calls us to affliction, He calls us to suffering. When we embrace His Son, have you ever had anybody say to you, Man, I didn't know what trouble was till I got saved. Anybody ever told me that? Like, man, I was cruising along, partying, and just living life. Man, I got saved. Oh, man, things changed. And I'm like, yeah. You're not running with the devil anymore. You're running against the devil. And things do, do change. But glory to God, they change. You know what I'm saying? We're not running with the devil anymore. We're running against him, and we're on our way uh, to heaven. Gruden points out that this call is effectual because God guarantees it. Now, his... Calvinism is going to slip in here on him. It's effectual for all those who are called to salvation and election. Uh, There is an effectual call for them, and then there is a general call to to all for salvation. Remember the revealed will, hidden will dichotomy that he created? This calling comes through the preaching and the sharing of the gospel of Jesus by his followers. Uh, Many respond And many will reject. And those who respond favorably in salvation are those who have received the effective, effectual calling. Okay? That's what he says. He also points out that we must stress that people are saved because they willingly respond to the gospel by personal faith and repentance. I just get tickled sometimes because I'm like, they're called, they're elected, and that's why whoever... (laughs) Whoever believes, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And brother, you're right. I mean, you just got to be at peace with with both of them being being true. He said, we should pray fervently because it is God who saves. And unless he works in their hearts, then they or we are condemned uh, to die. Unless God works in our hearts and then we respond. I mentioned to you, he distinguishes between this general call to salvation and the effective call. Uh, let 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 me repeat this. This is worth repeating. The general call goes out to all. And it's often rejected, but the effective call is particular, internal, and always effective. I'll let y'all grapple with that. Elements of the call. Elements of the gospel call. There are are three of these here. When preaching or sharing the gospel uh, with unbelievers, we should accentuate or stress these three things. Number one, we ought to explain the facts concerning salvation. The facts concerning salvation. What are the facts? The facts are, number one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And y'all help me with scripture as I give y'all this. Romans 3.23, all right? The penalty of sin for every person born is death, which is Romans 6.23. Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sin. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died. What is that? Romans 5, 8, and then when we believe and repent, he saves us, uh, who, Romans 10, 9. That's right, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that, those are the salient key factors or features of a, of, a, of a salvation message, okay? Every time you witness and every time I preach or every time you teach and preach, you ought to, you ought to mention these, man's need, uh, man's lostness, uh, God's love, God's provision, man's response, okay? Number, number two, ooh, ooh, quick. Invitation to respond to Christ individually 
what do we do? What, what is our response? We respond in repentance and faith. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, don't you love this verse? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Y'all, I tell you, when I read that again last night and again this morning as I was studying for this, the King of Kings, God above all others said, I am meek, mild, gentle, and lowly. Does that do anything for y'all? Does that do anything for your arrogance? (laughs) Does that do anything for your pride? Does that do anything for your elevated view of yourself? I tell you, that just, it smote me. I mean, it just smited me, just like, Jesus said, I am gentle, meek, and lowly. And you come unto me, and I will give you salvation. Thank you, King Jesus. All right? The personal invitation given by Jesus is open to all, and here's how we must respond. Number one, uh, we have to believe. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gives the right to become uh, children of God. Okay? We have to repent. Uh, let me read Luke 24.47. It says, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then Romans 10, 9, we already quoted that one. So let's pass that one and go to Acts 20, 21. Uh, Check this one out, y'all. Acts 20, 21. This is a great verse when when you're talking to people. And what we're talking about is becoming a Christian, giving the gospel call. The two prerequisites, the two things every person saved has to do. Now, be careful, Brother Dan. You're talking about a work salvation. No, I'm not. I'm just saying salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. He convicts us, he convinces us, and he says to us, you are a sinner, and here's what you have to do to go to heaven. You've got to believe. You've got to believe in me, and you've got to turn away from your sin. That is the apostolic preaching of the New Testament, and that should be our preaching today. Paul said, I testified to Jews and to Greeks. Here it is. This is such a great verse. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. If you forget your name, if you forget your address, if you don't know who you are and you're so confused and you're so uh, dumbfounded when you're witnessing to somebody, remember that verse. Just say, the Bible says believe in Jesus and turn from your sins, and that's how you come uh, to to Christ and to salvation. The last thing I want to share is the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. To those who repent and believe, Jesus grants to us forgiveness and eternal life. John 3.16, you know that one, but let me read Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, and your sins will be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What a great verse. The importance of the gospel call is the, um, is the last thing. It's just basically we are commanded and commissioned to preach the word, share the good news, and if we do not, how will they believe? And how will they hear uh, if they are not sent? And how will they hear unless a preacher tells them, what, what chapter am I in? What verses am I in? Romans, that's right, Romans chapter 10. Okay, I better stop. It's 745. Um, I got to stop. I'm not done, but I got to stop. Uh, let, let me pray for you before, you before you go. And let me encourage you as I, as I pray for you. We're going to... Uh, uh, man, I tell you, I got to thinking, Brother Terry, about the next f- couple of Sundays coming up. Y'all know the, the Baylor Choir's coming Sunday. Is that right? Sunday? A bunch of those uh, students are going to come, and they're going to help us lead in worship for about 30 minutes, I think it is. And, um, 
And so I'm gonna, I'll be preaching Revelation chapter 1, verses uh, 7 and 8. So excited about this message. And then the next week, uh, our International Mission Board personnel are going to be worshiping with us. We're going to have people from all over. And then Wednesday night, we're going to uh, be able to have a commissioning service right here at Great Hills. Tom Elif is going to preach. Uh, David Youth, the uh, chairman of the International Mission Board, and uh, the choir, the orchestra. We're just going to have a wonderful time, and that is February the 26th. And then the next Sunday is our all-in uh, Sunday, our, our big high attendance day, and we're, the Bible Life classes are having these competitions and these knockdown drag-outs with one another. It's, it's wonderful. Just kidding. No bloodshed. But it's going to be competitive. It's going to be fun. And then we're going to have a free uh, dinner Dinner on the grounds. It's going to have, we're going to have a good time Sunday, the second. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for these, um, these uh, theologians, Lord, before us today. God, these laymen who love you and are willing to get up early and to study the, the difficult doctrines of our faith because, Lord, we do want to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed but rightly dividing the word of truth. So thank you for these. Thank you for these online. Pray that you'd bless them. And uh, just be with us today, God. Help us to be very cognizant, very sensitive of people around us so that we could encourage them if they know you and we can share the gospel with them if they don't. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. Bless you.